Welcome to the Ben and Tony podcast. This is Anthony, and today we have Simon Crawford Ash. So Simon Crawford Ash is a general partner at Helix Collective, an early stage VC fund and venture studio based out of Sydney, Australia. When Simon was younger, he was going through a lot of existential crises and dropped out of university actually at one point to pursue a career as a professional golfer. Afterwards, he went on to become one of the youngest but most senior strategy consultants at the McKinsey spinoff Port Jackson Partners, which was like a whirlwind business life that he lived that took him all over the world. Afterwards, Simon became the co-founder and CEO of Stillmark Group, a telco infrastructure company. And also, he's gotten deep into the world of meditation and mindfulness. He's always been motivated by organizational design, and it's fascinating to see how he's tried to create meaningful working communities. So, so Simon is someone who has struggled with major life decisions, which is something we can all relate to. His life path has taken a series of unconventional twists and turns. I mean, seriously, who decides to drop out of university to become a professional golfer? Also, who starts a telecommunications infrastructure startup? A super unsexy and super unnecessary, unnecessarily difficult business venture. Unpacking these wild decisions, I began to learn that Simon is truly a kind soul who cares about creating companies with a deeper purpose that bring people together. It's hard for me to relate to the specifics of Simon's story, but his life lessons are universal. Simon has found meaning and happiness in the messy middle. He's done it all, from trying to become a professional golfer with no previous golfing experience, to founding and growing his own company to over $100 million with a friend. In this episode, we really get to know a more intimate side of Simon. He's obviously an incredibly high-performing professional, and has moved at pace through strategy consultancy and now into the world of venture investment after building his own company. But behind that ambition and that achievement, we learn about the journey of someone who's slowly learned to act with more intention and self-reflection in his life, and the impact that that's had on him. Simon has been through his own personal journey, and has always set tougher goals for himself when he reaches the peak of the last, which I think a lot of people will relate to, and I hope some of you take comfort from that as well. Perhaps less relatable, though, is that Simon has discovered a form of meditation that he uses so that he can sleep no more than three hours in a given evening. Hope you guys really enjoy this. So every ready? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Can I just one quick chug? Uh... <laughs> We've yeah, been I, I up with rocky things. Okay. Yeah. How much whiskey do you have in that? Um. So. <laughs> welcome and welcome to our wonderful guest today, Simon Crawford Ash. Simon is dialing in from Sydney, a wonderful part of the world, Australia, not too far away from me in New Zealand. And Simon's had a really interesting life. He started off working in strategy consulting in quite a few places around the Middle East. As an example, he moved on to found his own company in the telecommunication space. And now he's in the middle of a pretty big transition in life where he's setting up his own VC fund in Australia called Helix Capital. Just getting it off the ground right now, but looking forward to seeing what he's doing there. But Simon, welcome. Thanks for being here. And maybe we could start off by hearing about a younger Simon, Simon back in the day, and maybe some of the things that you did. Not, not, not that age matters, you know, age is just a number, but you know, we have all formative experiences in our life. And I know you've had some really interesting experiences and transitions. I know one of the biggest transitions in your life is when you had just left uni or thinking about that. So how about we start off with that? I mean, the earliest, earliest, uh, was probably deciding, you know, what to study at uni, uh, and then and then deciding to quit that, and um, and what I, you know, I tried to do next. But 
I, I remember, you know, I remember really at that time being pulled in lots of different directions, you know, and, and for me, I was, I, I think I went to an interview at, in Brisbane for a applied physics degree at QUT and they, they had a list of all the other things that I'd applied for on my whatever application and they were like, this is very unusual, you know, like you've really? got listed here physics and journalism and drama and, and maths, like, how dare you have so many interests? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And was, they really asked it like that. They're like, there's something wrong about this. Like, you know, you can't just put these different disciplines on. Like, what kind of a warped human are you? You know? And I was like, oh, really? Like, there's something wrong with that? Like, I don't know. I'm just figuring out which direction I want to go, you know? Um, so I tried to think about it a lot, but I, I think I made, you know, terrible decision looking back because I ended up deciding to do actuarial studies. Um, but the real reason for that was because, you know, I was fascinated by physics, but I was pulled a little bit towards some more creative things, but that didn't feel like me, you know, I was like, oh, you know, like, I just couldn't picture myself doing drama or creative writing, even though I really loved it. Your decision-making process about how you should approach life that made you decide against actuarial studies, figure out all these other things you're interested in. Uh, I think you mentioned that when you started getting into to yoga and meditation, that played a role in helping you think that way. And if, if I heard you correctly, you started that at university because clearly it's something you've continued throughout your whole life. Like, was there a, something that you did when you first started getting into yoga that made you think, okay, my, my view on the world has now changed because of this meditation and yoga that I'm doing now. Yeah. I mean, yoga became a big part of my life, but again, it was, it was one of those sliding doors happen chance things. I, um, I was on the Gold Coast and Angus and Robinson bookstore was closing down like they all were. And this yoga book was a dollar forty-five, um, and it had this fierce-looking dude on the cover of it. You know, it's like a movie, right? And I'm yeah. just like, was it, was okay. it Anthony? Are you sure it <laughs> Actually, it looked a lot like you. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Um, and, uh, my old, my old life. And uh, you know, he was like there, staring down the camera, and it was like journey into power. And I thought, I've always wow. been curious about yoga, but I thought that it was like some fluffy thing, you know. And it, I guess it. Uh, it soothed the insecurity in me that couldn't imagine myself doing some fluffy yoga thing and it appealed to a different kind of aspiration in me to be powerful. And, and that was what got me across the line, that and the $1.45 price. And um, so I taught myself yoga out of that book and nice. uh, for a few years and taught a few people at uni and, and really, but it was just a physical thing, really. Like, you know, it was a good way to, you know, soothe a few ailments and injuries that I had and, and become a little stronger and, um, probably calm down my hyperactive anxiety tendon uh, mind and, and emotional state at the time. And uh, it was then after a few years that I ended up somewhat randomly by my um, beautiful mum being given a ticket to a yoga weekend, which I think by pure coincidence happened to be run by the same people as this book. Wow. And uh, that was where in this intensive weekend, they, had not just the yoga, which I realized that my taught methodology was so much less than than the real yoga, and I, I got my ass kicked. And uh, somewhere in that tiredness and then some of the self-reflection conversations that happened, I guess I got a little more of a window into some self-reflection that became a total addiction for the next, you know, rest of my life. You know, it was kind of the first moment where I'd realized a thought process about myself that I hadn't seen before yet had been influencing my decisions. And I was like, wow, like what could be more important than that? You know, like if I could 
if I have these things running around influencing the decisions I make, and I was already a believer that the decisions I was making in life were important. And I was trying my best to like do the pros and cons and like figure out what was important. Um, I remember just before I quit uni, the first time uh, I, I spent like every weekend during my work placement, because I, I didn't like the work placement. I was what being an actuary and I being an actuary, right? So I, I did my, my uni degree in actuarial science and I was on a scholarship that meant that I did a bunch of placements in the industry. So at the end of first year, I spent three months working as a consultant in life insurance, um, just as a super junior. And, and I was, I guess, stuck in the very box that I feared about science, you know, like I was there in a, a room with no windows and typing on some project that I didn't understand and had no meaning yeah. to me. And I was just a super lackey junior doing shit kicker jobs and, um, and I was like, this is not life, you know, like I got to get out. And uh, so I did that during the day. And on the weekend, uh, I, I hand washed my shirts and then spent time doing the pros and cons of what I, what I should do instead. Uh, and that was basically my summer, you know, what a terrible summer. And, um, <laughs> and I, I sweated that so much, you know, like I was, I was stewing like, oh, first of all, there was only three options, if I remember this correctly. I could... Uh, quit and become a professional golfer. I could uh, quit and do physics. Or I think there was, there was another third vague option that I kind of dismissed very quickly, which was like write a book or something, you know, somehow do something. Okay. I was like, oh, that was I, so, so I was I, like, really? I've got to ask here because the word golf hasn't come up once in the conversation so far. So to me, that's just like, if someone just listening to this, be like, where does that come from? You know, I don't think you said the word golf. <laughs> in this conversation yet i know i know but this was this is the hilarity of it right like i'm a year in i've, I've decided to do actuarial studies so i don't want to be a nerdy physicist and then i've had a taste of actuarial studies and i'm like i'm out so either i've got to go back to becoming a physicist or i've got to become a professional golfer that yeah. that was it that was the only two options yeah and um you know i'd played golf a lot as a young kid um you know my my grandfather no one in my family played golf you know i wasn't even you know, as long as I got good or anything, like I wasn't on the verge of becoming pro. I just played every week. Um, yeah. And I kind of liked it, but you know, um, it just makes no sense looking back that, you know, <laughs> I spent all this time, like it's not as though it was a snap decision, right? Like every weekend I was thinking about it and I was reflecting on it and I was putting in my earnest best effort to make this transition really smartly, you know, with a lot of thought and, and I didn't even, con it couldn't, occur to me that the questions that I was asking were already bugged, you know, like I'd already presupposed this strange frame of two different decisions. And, and I think that's such a big problem with transitions is that sometimes it's not so much making the right answer. It's like starting with the right question, you know, and this is what I've really tried to ask myself a lot more later in my years when I saw this and be like, okay, you know, like if I'm deciding between those two things, I've already lost, you know, like I've already missed the point. Yeah, I, I guess question for me as well is, you know, where did those two come from? Were they, were they, because you said it wasn't family influenced and it doesn't seem like you're hanging around with other golfers kind of, where nope, did it come nope. from? Uh, yeah, right. So, I mean, I, I liked golf. Um, I probably hadn't played it for a year since I'd been in Sydney because I moved down from the Gold Coast. So it's not as though I was surrounded by it at any stretch. Um, it honestly, um, you know, I believe for me at least, and I, I think this is pretty common in humans is on a more subtle level than we realize we're so influenced by this aspirational desire to feel a certain way. And for me in my late teenage years and early twenties, you know, like 
I mean, I grew pretty late. I had glasses. I was, you know, more of an intellectual kid. Um, and I think I felt insecure about being, uh, you know, nerdy or, you know, like, like this, right. And, and I think what really was underneath that was like, there was some part of me that was like, I'm more than the way I appear to the world and I've got to do something to change that. You know, like if I stay the way I am, I don't feel, I don't feel me, you know, like something's got to shift here. And, and that's where golf came from because it was like, I could do something physically active all the time. I'd be working out. I could get fit. I could get stronger. I could be out in nature. It felt like this big, expansive, expressive, like free, like yeah. physical endeavor that I could spend my time doing, which felt like such a beautiful liberation from me trapped in this room with no windows typing on some, you know, life insurance actuarial problem that um, I didn't care about. And, and that's really why golf became it because in my world, you know, I had played golf before, but in my world, it was the most opposite to the feeling that I didn't like and therefore became the carrot to try and, you know, pull me into something that felt better, you know, but yeah golf was not the right thing to do that, but it was just, I didn't think more broadly about what was really motivating me here. And, and therefore it was the thing I could think of, you know, that's completely fascinating. So, so you actually went and dro dropped out and decided to go all gung ho on golf. Yeah. After my, my eight weeks of thorough pros and cons deliberation, I decided to quit university, quit my, um, you know, fairly competitive scholarship and uh and become a professional golfer with no track record and uh, no prior indication what, what did the family think <laughs> my family was wonderful they were supportive they were like very nice. okay sure yeah. <laughs> you know they they um they really tried their best to instill um a belief that i could learn anything or do anything if i tried hard enough and i think that you know that was a real asset because you know uh that was one limitation I didn't have to overcome, you know, yeah. uh, family pressure or, you know, like something like that. I mean, I've struggled with my own self doubt in other ways in other things, but in that instance, it wasn't there. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I'll do it. And I just assumed everyone would support me and they did. So, so what happens next? Like, do you start playing in tournaments? Like I not very familiar with the, the golf scene personally. So like, do you, cause one of the things like, I'm just thinking, like, look at my, my, my pragmatic lens here. I'm just thinking to myself, well, do you get paid? Like, like do you do like a side job while you're winning tournaments or trying to win tournaments? And what's interesting to me yeah. too is that you haven't even okay. mentioned like, oh, financial security. You know, that that seems to be like in your young age. I know a lot of people at university think I'm doing this because I want to get a good job. You know, I'm studying law because my parents say I should. And it seems like you've had a much more like open mind to what you want to do even back then. Yeah, and also, I mean, what it's 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 pretty uh, high stakes for entry as well to tournaments and all the gear and the traveling. It's it's not exactly cheap with a student burden. Yeah, totally. Um, and I I had no reason to have confidence around money either. I mean, I I didn't grow up with money. Um, you know, my my dad worked multiple jobs in hospitality. My mum, um, you know, I mean, I must have been a handful uh, and took a lot of her attention. And then. Uh, you know, I mean, I think I had a lot of allergies as a kid and things like this and these sorts of things stress out uh, dear mothers. And, and then my sister came along and she was even more sick, you know, so mum basically just had a full-time care role, you know, for, for um, her, her challenging children. And so, um, you know, we were always super stretched, but my family, I think were super, again, generous in that they never placed that burden on us. And although we didn't um, have 
you know, things or, you know, go out to restaurants, you know, waste money and waste money, you know, like we didn't do any of those things growing up. Um, we were never really told that, you know, there was no heaviness around money. You know, we we're always told like, don't make decisions because of money, you know, like the money will be solved, you know, like that where that's the right path, you know, you'll find a way to get the money that you need, you know, don't let the money be a stopper to you. And so, um, you know, I'm super thankful for that attitude. You know, this is, one of, again, one of those subconscious things that's in there that was influencing my decisions without me noticing it. But in this case, you know, I'm glad it was there. <laughs> um, but of course, yeah, I had to work, you know, so I, I did some tutoring, you know, I, um, I guess that's the benefit of being a nerdy kid is that you can um, make a pretty decent hourly rate tutoring other people to be more nerdy. And, um, and, you know, that worked out for me. Okay. I did some private tutoring. I joined a little organization. I then, but I wanted to do something a little different. So I, I did a little bit of cold sales um, selling. Wow. I mean, it was mass, mass education software, but it was, it was cold sales, like in a cold center. You just had to, no, like uh, you got a booth in a shopping center and, and you just have to like grab people as they walk past and like convince them to give their contact details and become a lead for someone else to follow up with. Um, uh, pretty brutal. Cause like no one cares, right? Like they're just walking past you and they're like, Nope, Nope. You know? Yeah. So, um, but you were, you had to get, you know, a certain number of, you know, genuine leads every day. Um, the pay wasn't that great, but I think again, this was some part of me attempting to bring something different forward. You know, I could never done anything like that before and I wanted to be more confident. So I guess this was a good way to get paid to practice it. Um, and so, yeah, I did all those things. I, I got by financially. Um, I moved back home. So I guess that helped. Um, and yeah, then I just played golf, like five or six days a week. Um, and in, in my spare time, I probably read books and played a few computer games. And other than that, that was, that was like my life for like eight months. Um, and, uh, at that point, you know, I was, I was getting decent, you know, like down to, down to low single digit handicap. Like I was pretty happy with how much I'd been improving. Um, and, and then, uh, I got, this strange thing just like in my wrist, my knuckles here, they kind of swelled up and I got tested and I had juvenile arthritis. Um, and I say that in air quotes because as soon as I quit golf, it disappeared to never bother me again. So I also think it was like divine intervention, just telling me not to be a golfer. I don't know, but like not trying to be a professional golfer. <laughs> that was it. That was it. I was like, well, I can't wrap my hand around a club anymore Literally. and I'm right handed. So like, that's the end of golf, right? Like, that's it. I went to the doctor. They said it can't be cured. I was like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> so I went back to uni. Wow. That, that's such a great, like, journey of self-discovery, it sounds like. You know, like, whether or, not, <laughs> you know, whether or not you ended up, maybe you could have been the next Tiger Woods. Who knows what the world might have missed out on if you didn't get juvenile arthritis. But I, I don't like, think the world was I mean, Maybe uh, not. Maybe not. Maybe you're doing something more aligned to your skills right now. But it seems like such an interesting journey of self-discovery and also how you make decisions. You know, I think that this is uh, a big decision that you made that probably requires a lot more courage and open-mindedness than most decisions people make, especially when they're at university. So I think that what, regardless of the fact whether or not you could have been the next Tiger Woods, I feel like that must have been such an interesting experience overall for you over that eight-month, year-long period. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that reflection. And, it, you know, it's something that, you know, in some ways I aspire to now, you know, I think that as I've grown and understood myself better, in some ways, um, I, I hope that I managed to retain that kind of 
um, you know, willingness to just totally upend my life and do something different if that's where I'm pulled, you know, like I aspire to that, that courage, I guess, you know, that willingness to just re-roll the dice and reset everything if that's what feels right to me and, and not to get constrained by anything. And I think that becomes harder and harder as you get older because, you know, you like things and you do things, you commit to things and, you know, you, you can slowly start to convince yourself that that's not possible. But I don't know if that's true. You know, I, I think that there's always a way if something is the right direction for you to go and there's always a transition you can make and always a way to manage it. And, you know, the money will work out there'll be a way to make the money work out you know it may take some creativity or a different angle but you know i believe that and and the same with other things you know people important relationships commitments whatever you know like there's always a way to make them work out if it's the right thing so i hope so i hope i managed to continue that you said uh you said something interesting earlier about you'd love to go back and meet your kind of younger self you know what would you say to you when you're kind of going to drop out and do professional golf would it be kind of a message of you know do it quicker do it sooner or Hold up, just don't do that yet. Great question. Um, I mean, God, that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? I would love to do that. I mean, in I have two responses. First of all, I would want to be like a fly on the wall and not actually change anything. You know, like I mean, you know, you don't know what would happen. Like if I didn't go and do that, how would my life have turned out differently? You know, but um, uh, so I don't really have an aspiration for changing things in my life. Although I think partly that's deliberate, you know, like, I mean, I think it's just a healthy psychological perspective to try and develop to, to not regret anything in the past. Um, but I would love to talk to me, you know, like looking back, you know, it, I put so much effort in and I was so blind, you know, like I just want to be back there and have this conversation and, and almost understand even better, you know, my own psychology, you know, I think, um, you know, what was going on there? And like, if I had have asked myself, like, so why only those two things? You know, like, what would have I responded? You know, like, what would have I said? How would have I justified it? You know, like, I just, I would, I would love to, you know, be another person, like, you know, put myself into a different body, like as a, as a stranger that could like cameo back and like have a chat with my past self without me realizing that I'm visiting from the future. Yeah. That would be wicked. It sounds like you have like, I've really taken that kind of philosophy of rerouting yourself throughout your life though, because kind of going forwards to, um, you know, when you're working in consulting and then dropped out to make your own business, it's a similar kind of decision that you had to make. Do you feel like that was kind of at that stage of your life an easier decision because you had already kind of, uh, you know, dropped out and done the golf thing before? Mm. I need a sip of tea for that one. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. I think it was harder. Um, and I think for the reasons that I said before, you know, I there was a certain, um, you know, blissful ignorance or, you know, when I look back at myself in my teenage years, I really feel like I was on autopilot in many ways, you know, like I didn't really consciously contemplate any decisions, uh, but things happened, you know, I did things, but I don't really remember having real moments of self-reflection. And it was like the golf decision and my uni decision are the first decisions that I remember really consciously attempting to make, you know, like really putting in effort to make them well. But it's like, I still was not really self-aware enough to realize how, like I was putting an effort, but I was just looking through this tiny little slither of perspective and I didn't realize that, you know? And and then as I've gotten older and and I think, you know, really been um, helped by a lot of practices and great teachers in, you know, yoga and meditation and other things like that, um, 
but definitely my intent has been trying to broaden that out, you know, like see more broadly, see more of what's going on, see what is really happening inside of myself and not be so narrow. But the narrowness, you know, while it may be flawed is kind of easy, you know, because you just don't see all of these extra perspectives and nuance. And, you know, so it was like, there's only two things. And I was so convinced of that. It was like, all right, well, you know, make a decision. Yep. I guess this is the best one I can make in all the ways that I can think of possibly thinking about it, which is like write a pros and cons table. Like that was all I had. This is really becoming quite a um, um, biography, isn't it? Uh, I don't think I've ever told so much of my story in one. It's, it's a great story. Largely monologue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, feel free to interject at any point, guide me in the right direction. Sure. So um, consulting. So I, I took a job at Port Jackson Partners, um, which uh, was a boutique strategy consultancy, um, a spin out from McKinsey about 20 years earlier. Um, and it was a relatively small partnership, you know, maybe of eight-ish, let's say, directors, and, and maybe it was around 30 or 40 odd people in total. Um, and, and that made it a kind of special place because it had some, you know, super well-regarded, incredible talent in the strategy consulting world. You know, my, um, development mentor was the former head of growth strategy for McKinsey globally. Um, the, one of the founders of the firm started the McKinsey Asia practice. Um, there was a bunch of other super talented directors that were kind of hotshots at McKinsey or in other places in a common, it was a real, um, I think for the partners, you know, a real place for them to uh, have their own playground that was less constrained than being part of McKinsey, which, you know, I understand is a fantastic firm as well, but this gave awarded them more flexibility, allowed them to choose the kinds of projects they wanted to do. And, you know, I just felt super lucky to be, you know, one of the few people that, you know, got lucky enough to end up in there and be trained by these people and, and help them out on their projects. And so it was an incredible apprenticeship in, in business through the strategy consulting lens. And, um, and for me in particular, I think what I loved most about it was that it, it awarded me this playground to, you know, like, I, I guess I've, mentioned a few times, I, there was parts of me that wanted to come forward, you know, like I felt like I had more confidence inside of me that I wasn't expressing. I felt like I had more presence in me that I wasn't expressing. I felt like I had more to give that was constrained in this little box, you know, and, and sometimes I still feel like that, but I felt like it a lot back then. And, uh, and consulting was a really great um, playground to like kind of smack myself in the face with that because you know you were able to develop and progress in responsibility as quick as you could demonstrate you could do it you know like it was very meritocratic and so uh and i i came in with a background in actuarial science which made me you know crush the analytics part of it and i very quickly got onto the communications and client relationships and project management and this stressed a different part of me and i had to be able to manage people and have challenging conversations and front up to you know, a 60 year old CEO in Dubai that was running a giant construction company as a mid 25 year old and tell him that I had ideas about how to run his business better. And he's like, okay, kid, like, you know, yeah. get out of my face. Where's the adult, you know? And, um, and maybe I had some interesting ideas, but if I didn't have enough presence to put them across, you know, I was never going to be listened to. So um, it became a real playground for that. And that's probably what I love most about it is that, you know, I could really attempt to find different parts of me to, you know, to, to bring those qualities forward. And, you know, that probably paints a bit of a picture, but the work itself, yeah, I, I worked in, in Europe, a, a big project in Switzerland, um, which was 
you know, wild fun. It was kind of transforming the zinc industry. Who knows anything about the zinc industry, zinc right? Industry. But that became an wow. expert. Wow. Yeah, I don't know where to begin with that. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> this is one of the great things. So much, Anthony, that's yeah. why. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, where do I begin with zinc? <laughs> where do I begin with zinc? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the world's biggest producer of zinc. And they were obviously based in the West. And in the recent decade or so, China had ramped up their zinc production and they were becoming uncompetitive on cost. And that they couldn't, you know, with all the European um, regulations around health and, you know, safety and environmental, you know, they couldn't seem to find a way to lower their costs enough to compete. And so they needed to completely reinvent their business. And um, so we did a, a large project about that. And, um, you know, that took me all over the world and, and developing a, um, yeah, some really complicated uh, software that ran on 25 laptops back in the office to model all of the metal ores around the world and all the different shipping routes and like trying to optimize different strategies for what kind of things that they could buy and process and different upgrades they could make to their global network of plants. And it was wild, you know, really fun. I really enjoyed it, but it, you know, it gave me a chance to try and, um, you know, own an idea and represent it to this company and, and back it and manage the team and front up to these monthly workshops in Zurich and then back to Sydney for, for more work. And, um, you know, attempt to, you know, drive something and change an opinion and change a business and think practically. And it was a lot of fun, you know, a lot of fun. I'd reached associate principal level in consulting, which is kind of junior partner, which um, is, you know, the transition point to becoming um, a full partner and, and so on of the firm. Um, and kind of means that you've, you've reached the pinnacle in terms of running a project, you know, like you can run a complex project, you can manage a large team, you know, in terms of any consulting capability, you know, hopefully, you know, you've got it. Um, but what you don't have is being the, the head contact person for the client, you know, you're not doing business development, you know, like that's, that's, you're kind of on the transition point of then building your own client base and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I guess the job changed quite a lot. Um, and, and I, I just don't think that I was going to make that transition very well. You know, I'd, I'd risen very rapidly. Uh, I think I was, you know, definitely the youngest at the time, maybe the youngest um, PJP had had to rise to that, that rank in the firm. But as a whatever age I was, mid-20s, to genuinely start selling my own work for multi-million dollar projects, you know, I, um, I think the view in the firm was that I wouldn't be able to. Mm. And... I think that was probably right. You know, I, I don't think I had the presence necessary to pull that off. Um, I didn't have the age and experience and credibility um, and, and style, you know, either, you know, I, I just, I probably couldn't have done that very easily. Um, and so things were going to slow down for me in terms of development um, was my feeling, you know, I, again, I don't know if this is true or not, but that's the way I think it felt to me. And and a big part of why I loved the job was the good learning and growth in it, you know, and, and this was one of the takeaways I took and what I wanted to then play with in a business um, later was, you know, I really believe that a massive motivator for a lot of people is what they're learning in their work, through their work, you know, who they're becoming, not just what they're getting paid. And so creating a company that makes opportunities for people to grow and develop, you know, should give a company a real competitive edge because it should inspire a level of creativity and giving and desire to do, to give back, you know, to the firm because the firm's giving so much to you, you know, like that's, that's, I guess, one of the ideas that I took away from my time there because of my experience. And so I ended up taking a sabbatical. Uh, it was too difficult a choice to leave. Um, so I took 12 months off to 
uh, explore some of my other interests, which have been kind of piling up. Consulting is super intense, busy. Um, I started meditating while I was there. Um, I tried a few formats, but I ended up falling in with Vedic meditation, um, which I really loved. And but I abused the practice. I just used it to sleep less. Um, oh, wow! I, I meditate. Wait, so can you explain? So what is Vedic? Yeah, so many things I want to ask there. Okay, so you got to double down. <laughs> what is Vedic meditation? How did you sleep less? Uh, and everything else. Yeah, sure. Sorry, my story's um, tangent into too many things, don't they? It's great. Um, so uh, Vedic meditation is a, um, a branch, I guess. You know, transcendental meditation maybe is more commonly known, um, which is a, um, you know, it's, it's rooted in Indian um, philosophy and, and theory um, and practice, um, but has been, you know, taken to the West and, and um, popularized, I guess, you know, through the Transcendental, Transcendental Meditation Organization. And uh, it's a fairly simple technique, you know, super accessible um, for beginners, 20 minute meditation. You've got a mantra that you, you know, say during the meditation, which helps you kind of let go and relax and, you know, hopefully slip out of your thinking and into a space of being or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but certainly what it does do and, and Vedic meditation is really the similar in all these regards. It's just a slightly different branch of, of when I'm really thinking hard about a problem and I'm really intensely focused on solving a problem, working on a consulting thing, building a business, whatever, there's like a certain like, uh, like intensity from the mind, you know, and, and that uh, can mean a lot of very fast work if it's well-directed, which is, you know, another challenge, but if it is, it can mean very fast work, but it, it has a gripping effect that almost feels like it, uh, you know, like squeezes out the, the life and energy out of your body. You know, like I think anyone that's worked hard can relate to that. And sometimes it's not just lack of sleep. It's like this, you know, like yeah. effect kind of exhausted you and can lead to headaches if you push it and all sorts of things in my experience anyway. And Vedic meditation is excellent at uh, reversing that, you know, um, it kind of provides this like exact opposite movement in, uh, in feeling to me, like this feeling of spaciousness and spreading. And it's like the body can breathe again. And you're not doing this intentionally. You just got a very simple technique, but it brings back this feeling of like relaxation and, and deep rejuvenation on a level that's not like deep sleep. It's like mm. something else. You know? and, uh, and they have theory behind this and how it works and so on. But that's my experience, experiential you know, um, perspective on it. And, uh, and it helped so much. You know, when I was at consulting, that grippingness and tightness, I would pop these you know, 20 minute meds, um, as I'd call them, twice a day and yeah, no doubt. Like I could have much more clarity of mind while, you know, I mean, there were times I was pretty extreme. You know, I, I've always found it easy to wire up my adrenal system. And when I'm passionate and care about something, I can work pretty hard. So, you know, I'd go through on projects, sleeping three hours a night for, yeah. you know, a week or more time. Um, I'd work through the night. Sometimes I don't drink coffee. I don't drink tea. Um, wow. and, an, and I just no, pop these no caffeine on three what? hours a night. How? <laughs> it can't just be the meditation, surely. <laughs> well, the claim was that 20 minutes would give you the equivalent of three to four hours of sleep. Now, I, I really tried to verify that hard. I don't quite think that that's true. 20 minutes did not give me the same as three to four hours of sleep. But I could definitely operate at the same level of mental faculty with less tension in my body not less tiredness. Like I'd still feel very tired, but I'd have spaciousness of mind and mental clarity and I could push myself through 
um, with at least two to three hours less sleep than I could without it, for sure. So you could, you, could you, would you ever have the experience where you, you know, you'd be stuck on a problem, pretty truncated by kind of how gripping your own mindset was on you? You'd go into one of these meditations, then you'd come out and be able to kind of creatively problem solve it from a completely different angle straight afterwards. For sure, yeah, all the time, and um, and probably even more so for me um, when I'm engaged in the problem. Uh, I, it's not it's not like I get a feeling of stuckness. Like I've always. Um, they're not necessarily the right answers, but if you ask me a question, I'll often have an answer. Like it, it comes from somewhere. Um, yeah. uh, but what I'd find when I'm getting tense, I'd become very, very reactive. You know, like there's no space in between me and the ideas, no space between me and the people. And I wouldn't like that, particularly when managing teams, you know, when we're all really hustling to a deadline, we're trying really hard, everyone's digging in, everyone's giving a lot. And, you know, something goes wrong and there's like a, oh, you know, like part of me is just like, hitting them back so hard, it's kind of harsh and it's kind of very task oriented. And um, when I would get like that and notice it, I'd be like, all right, I need to meditate. You know, like I just need to somehow like bring back the spaciousness, yeah. bring back, I'm not gonna be giving my best work. I'm not giving my best advice. I'm certainly not motivating the team in the right direction, you know, and, and I'd use it for that a lot. Um, but then also just sheer stamina, you know, like at some point yeah. you starts getting pretty fuzzy if you're not wow. sleeping and uh, it would help clarify that up no doubt so so i mean you ended up setting up a telco company to me again that seems just like golf like i don't know where this comes from man like where, so so please tell us how did how did the telco company come together if i'm describing it correctly no you're you're right and you're right in its um bizarreness as well um so i was hanging out there's a few people from poor jackson partners that uh had left around a similar time they'd started up a little incubator and we're playing around with some startup ideas. And I was interested in entrepreneurship and interested in startups and interested in technology. Um, hadn't had a lot of exposure to it yet. So I was hanging around with them and that was part of, you know, exposing to some things, seeing if there was something that we all aligned on that we wanted to do together or not, or, you know, see. So that I had some exposure there that was allowing me to uh, explore the startup space um, a lot better. But also I started doing a bit of consulting and, and it was actually through probably, uh, I'm not sure exactly where, but at some point on the way through, I realized that I was really drawn to um, attempting to build a company. You know, it seemed like one of the ideas that really stuck with me after my time at Port Jackson Partners, I found the strategy fascinating, but I found the organizational design work even more fascinating. And that was the minority of projects that at least Port Jackson Partners would get hired for. It's not uncommon for a strategy piece to be followed by an organization piece, like how are we going to implement this around people? But a lot of the traditional paradigms around that is basically like, we've got a big org chart, you know, where are we going to move the boxes? How many people are we going to remove? Are we going to add new boxes? You know, delegations of authority, you know, like these are the kind of standard paradigm for organizational design. And to me, it just felt like it was lacking big pieces of the puzzle, you know, um, uh, how are you actually going to get people to do something different every day? You know, like we've made this giant change in strategy that really requires 10,000 people to prioritize things differently and have different objectives and goals and different creativity and spend the time here, not there. And I just, I wasn't really convinced that, you know, the responses from senior people sometimes are just like, Oh, we'll just tell them to do it differently. Like, I don't think that's going to work. You know, like 
they'll forget your words a week later and everything in their environment is the same. They're just going to be moving in the same direction. You're like, how are you? And this is the challenge that a lot of companies face. You know, how do you really change something in a big organization? And in my opinion, um, or at least what I wanted to believe and I didn't have any proof of was that uh, the answer lay in really developing this relationship with staff and cultivating an environment and an organization where they cared about the company. You know, and, and if you had some more flexibility, well, let me rewind that. If you could get a critical mass of people to care about the company they work for and want to do the right thing, then you could loosen a lot of organizational policies that are there to protect the company because people won't do the right thing. And in doing so, you can then liberate a lot of efficiency. You can be able to move and change things in a lot better ways and, you know, so on. Um, so quick, quick question on that. Are there companies that you admire that do that well? you know, like company culture that is, or organizational design that is above average from what you've seen. And, and then how that was applied to your telco startup too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there is the, this, the book, if anyone's interested in organizational design, they're interested in those kind of theories, you have to read a book called Maverick by Ricardo Semler. It's, um, it's old now, it's like decades old, but it's incredible. It's very accessible. It's not deep on theory. I mean, there's other books that are, you know, seminal in the work, like reinventing organizations and so on, but they're like heavy textbooks that you have to be a super fan to really get through. Maverick is a readable story about his experience and he upended, uh, he was, you know, lucky that he was given essentially control of this company from his father as a young person, but he had some wild ideas and the courage to put them in place. And, you know, can I tell a little story? Is this getting too sure, tangential? Absolutely, no, sure. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Two minute pitch um, of the Maverick takeout. <laughs> Ricardo Semler. I just love these ideas so much that uh, I can't help but talk about them whenever the opportunity comes up. But, um, and I love what he did, you know. So he, you know, one story from the book is uh, he was running a manufacturing business in, in Brazil. So, you know, like, and a lot of, um, you know, low socioeconomic people, large number of staff, like all the kind of things. This isn't like some like Google environment where you're like, yeah, you know, like we're all like young and we're like, you know, homogenous culture, which, you know, has its own problems, but it makes it a lot easier to have relaxed policy because people are on the same page. And, you know, like, this isn't that. This is like manufacturing line in Brazil, like 40 years ago, you know, like different beast. And this organization had been run totally under traditional, like rank and file hierarchy, strict controls, blah, 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 just like every other manufacturing business has been successful ever up until that point in history. Right? And, um, and what he did was like, well, they said, you know, there's a story, the CFO is like, oh, you know, we've got stealing going up, you know, my monitoring and report. And as we can see, more stuff got stolen this week than last week. This is a problem. Um, I'm slightly ad-libbing, but you know, you get the point. And, uh, and he was like, well, what do we do here? He's like, well, we, we do security checks when people exit, you know, a shift and we pat them down and we make sure they haven't stolen anything. He's like, stop that. And he's like, well, like, I just told you that stealing's going up. Like, this is a big problem. He's like, no, the reason is because you don't trust people enough. And he's like, okay, you're an idiot, but you have control of the company. So I guess I have to listen to you. Um, and he's like a young kid, you know, pretty much compared to his, his executives. So they stop it and stealing goes up and they're like, see idiot, you know, like see what happened. And he's like, no, nah, we haven't gone far enough. He's like, what else are you doing? And he's like, well, we lock up all our things in the lockup room, you know, to make sure that people don't take, he's like, take all the locks off, leave everything out in the open. Don't check anyone. And enough of these policies made enough of a difference that it like flipped the attitude of the people that, people realized that they were trusted and all of a sudden they just didn't steal. And a couple of bad eggs that would 
got socially ejected because they cared enough about the company. They wanted to get rid of the people that were abusing the policies because they appreciated the freedom, they appreciated the trust. And that simple idea was rolled out in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. And the company just went from strength to strength, like grew 100x. Um, and they completely empowered lower levels. And this spawned a whole bunch of new organizational philosophies, um, which have various names, but there's the whole Teal organization thing, which has a bunch of example companies, there's uh, organizational self-management, you know, a bunch of these ideas. Um, and a lot of these in a more one way have been adopted by tech companies in recent decades. Um, but he definitely paints the picture of what's possible. And, and in my own way, I was inspired by some of these ideas and I wanted to try and uh, put it into practice and build a company that um, would attempt to uh, be built around these ideals and see if it worked, see if it led to better performance. And, and if it would, I hoped that that would become a, you know, an example and I could talk about it and I could help, you know, open people's mind to a different way of treating people that they could, you know, have such a more fulfilling and better work experience and then give more to the company and the company could be more adaptive and responsive and flexible and higher performing. And like, it's just better for everyone if we can just get enough people to appreciate that this is, you know, a different way to run business that, you know, maybe in a lot of cases could really work. So that was why I was interested in entrepreneurship at the time. Long answer. That's that's so fascinating because actually it seems like what the most interesting part of that, the whole kind of moving into creating your own company was for you was actually running the people in a way that, you know, would, benefit everyone internally in the company. Um, was it, was it mostly about that and being able to be in that kind of position or was it about the kind of mission of the company itself as well? It was mostly about that. Um, I, uh, and this is how I ended up in telco. I, I was kind of, by the end of the year, I decided that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and I wanted it to be audacious. You know, I, I, you know, this was my, um, you know, whether it was right or wrong, the self-belief that, you know, audacious was the right idea, um, that it would work out. And, and if I was going to make an example of something, you know, there's no point making an example of a, you know, something small, like, you know, make a better statement if it was big. Right. So I thought that I'd, I'd try that out and, and I wanted it to be something not sexy, you know, like I wanted it to not be like a tech company. Like I wanted it to be old school and, you know, show that these ideas can work in all paradigms of business, not just modern new companies, you know, like everyone's like, Oh yeah, that's Google. Who cares? You know, like yeah. I wanted to be like, well, wow, really, you know, that was my, my goal. And so, um, at this time I was thinking, um, the idea actually came up from a, a friend originally and I, I thought it was brilliant. And I started looking into it around, you know, the new generation of banks. And this was before, at least in Australia, the FinTech thing had started. Um, but it had, begun when I started looking into it in the US. And uh, so I flew to the US and I spoke to a founder of a simple bank over there, happened to be a Melbourne guy. Um, And I was in the process of launching a bank myself in Australia um, under these kind of paradigms, thinking that, you know, banking is not very sexy. You know, people are, I mean, the, the, the stereotype about it is that it's not a super fulfilling, you know, people don't, you know, you know what I mean, right? I mean, I, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of roles in banking and uh, I don't mean to say, say that I've worked in a bank and actually had a great time when I worked at Colonial First State in uh, funds management. It was super fascinating. But to me, it felt like a stereotype of a business, an industry that wouldn't be thought of as, you know, modern and it's, different. It's rigid and it's definitely suits first, right? 
Exactly. You know, Definitely the image, yeah. not, not so much now with all the fintech stuff that's coming up, but back then what I was observing in Australia, that it was very traditional, very yeah. like the, the epitome of well done traditional, you know, hierarchy and organization design. And, you know, I think there was like eight, I probably got this wrong, but like eight or 10 different explicit levels in the hierarchy at the Commonwealth Bank Group, which included Colonial First Street, each with CEO of different things. And then, you know, like the org chart was enormous. Like, you know, it was, it was crazy. So I felt like that was the perfect opposite industry to, a, to attempt to do something different in. Um, but then I, I bumped into a friend of a friend who I met a few years earlier, hadn't seen since. He called me out of the blue and said that he'd been working on this telecommunications company and he was thinking about buying this construction business in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. And, uh, and he wanted me to help. He, he was wondering if I had some time free. He knew I was a, a good consultant and he needed some consulting advice as to whether or not he should buy this business. And I was like, who buys construction companies at the age of whatever, you know, like, okay, I got to check this out. So I did a few weeks work with him and went up to this construction company and assessed it. And, and, um, you know, we went through a whole process there, but in the journey, I kind of got to know the business that, um, at that stage it was just him, but he had raised a little bit of money and he had a bit of a plan and he was talking to some people in the telecommunication and, uh, I got kind of interested, you know, I was like telecommunications infrastructure is even less sexy than banking. I was like, this is cool. Um, so we ended up continuing to talk and ended up, um, you know, joining forces as equal co-founders to attempt to launch this business and, and create a telecommunications infrastructure company. Do you feel like you accomplished your initial goal of creating this new type of organization inspired by like Ricardo Semler? I mean, the, I think for you, you had that company for a few years. Do you feel like looking back on it, you accomplished the goal that you'd set up to create a new way to look at an organization? It's a great and difficult question. I would say both yes and no. Um, I would say that, uh, yes, there were many experiments that were incredibly successful. Um, I think for parts of the organization, and this is one of the problems, parts of the organization that really lived and breathed this principle. Um, we hired some people that really were aligned with it. And, you know, we were benchmarked at being twice as fast at deploying infrastructure than anyone else that worked to do so for Vodafone, um, which I think was a pretty incredible achievement. Um, uh, and, and it also, you know, like people would, you know, laugh at the idea of uh, infrastructure startup, you know, like you can't infrastructure startup, like you know, how much capital's involved and like how, like how do you even do that as like two kids that have no background in the industry? Um, and, and I think in a large part, it was because of some of these philosophies and ideals that allowed us to get off the ground with the amount of creativity and energy and passion that was needed by the small team in those first few years to overcome you know, I mean, that was twice that we were, you know, probably within weeks of not making payroll, but we managed to come through, you know, like it was a real hustle to get it off the ground. And I think without that kind of culture, and if we had have been more traditional, you know, there's no way we would succeeded. It was only because we were distinctive that we managed to attract good people, do better work, stand out for our clients, you know, everything had to come together or it never would have got there. So in that way, I say yes. On the other hand, um, I would do it differently if I was to do it again for a few reasons. I think we weren't thorough enough in the way that we implemented it. Um, I would say that uh, I didn't spend enough time really getting a deep level of understanding and buy-in from the whole organization. 
And then I would say that we had this tension that we, through our capital raises, we attracted some incredible investors and an incredible board. You know, um, we had uh, investors and board members that included former CEO of Telstra and former director of Singtel and, and you know, a, you know a pretty much the um, poster child of the AICD in terms of company directorship was our chairman and, you know, incredible, incredible advice and network, which really helped us. On the other hand, they were incredibly entrenched in the traditional way of running businesses. And um, I didn't confront those conversations successfully, directly enough or early enough to make it really align us all to the mission. And, uh, and I'm not sure even if I had of, if I would have succeeded, you know, like, um, uh, you know, with no disrespect to them, they, had ways that they knew and like they were kind of being asked to fill a role and they were going to fill it in the way that they could fill it best. And that was probably the right thing for them to do, you know? Um, but that then is difficult if you're then running the organization in one way and you've got a board and governance structure in another way. Uh, and so it was an incomplete implementation um, compared to how I perhaps originally envisaged it and not clear that um, with all the things we need to bootstrap, you know, it would have succeeded if we had have done a complete implementation. Maybe we couldn't have then attracted the quality of investors and board that we ended up getting. Maybe that meant we wouldn't have got off the ground in the way we did. So, um, you know, not saying that it should have been done differently, but uh, next time around, uh, I definitely learn a lot in, in terms of how I'd implement it more thoroughly. You're so honored with the self-reflection. I think, I feel like uh, you'd go through every single thing in your life and always find something that you would probably change differently. <laughs> well, you know, what's the point of doing things if you don't get better? Totally. Um, I'd love to know kind of, so you, you, you went into the kind of boring business and you, you made the changes you wanted with some caveats that you've obviously recognized now. Um, you know, coming forwards into the, the, the um, funds that you're starting to create, We'd love to hear the story of kind of how that came about um, and kind of what's, what's going on now. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I ended up leaving that business, that transition that then led towards the fund was, uh, yeah, a whole journey in and of itself and a, a little unexpected. Um, you know, my mom ended up getting really sick. And so I ended up leaving uh, to look after her full time for six months uh, and, and that therefore I couldn't be, you know, CEO of the infrastructure company. So, uh, and at the end of that six months, um, you know, I mean, what the doctors were saying and certainly the way that I, I felt really, uh, um, I mean, anxious and, and worried, frankly, um, for her still in many ways, though I, I tried not to show that to her. Um, sorry, mom. And, uh, and uh, I, I felt really uncomfortable about throwing myself back into a startup, which is, you know, I think to make successful, you've got to be so committed to it and put it first that I just couldn't see how to do that again. And, you know, I still wanted to spend a lot of time with mom and be flexible to do so, you know, so that kind of pulled me out of my role and um, we'd hired enough people and we'd grown in size. Um, you know, we were up around almost a hundred people at one point there. Um, and we had some super talented people and, and the business was kind of running um and so i thought you know maybe this is this is the right thing to do was to step out but that was hard because this was like my baby you know and and i i didn't really feel complete with it in the same way that i did with consulting i mean i even found consulting really hard but um we hadn't you know we hadn't reached the 
all the objectives that we wanted to yet, you know? So, um, but I made the decision, um, maybe not with as much uh, space as other ones because it was a little in the middle of everything, but I tried my best. And, uh, and after I left, had our final board meeting in Seattle, um, I went straight to a meditation retreat and uh, spent a couple of weeks there in an attempt to kind of decompress and find some center in myself so that I could, you know, come back and, you know, juggle things and, and uh, you know, have more to give for mom as well. Um, and yeah, so that, that kind of put, set the tone. And, and again, I guess like last time, I then spent a lot of time that year meditating. Um, I, over the course of the 18 months that followed, I probably ended up spending more than six months in meditation practices uh, on and off over the time. Um, increasingly as, as it seemed like mom was getting better and better, which, you know, really warmed my heart and I had more confidence for longer, longer commitments. Um, and yeah. And then that, that kind of led to the beginning of this year when I, I left a three month meditation experience um, and I'd been doing some advisory work, you know, uh, over that time, which was kind of the highest paid cash flexible work that I could think of. So I, um, and I stole the model off a friend. I was very fortunate to see that he was doing this successfully and thought, okay, maybe I could try that too. And, you know, just doing like weekly fortnightly calls with founders and helping them think through their decisions. And, you know, maybe it's personal stuff, maybe it's business stuff, whatever, you know, really just helping them out as best I could. Um, and that, that helped me get through financially. And, and, uh, I thought, well, the best way to scale this up, like, it's really fun, you know, helping people and advising founders. It seemed like I was, you know, they were finding it helpful and I had something to give. So, uh, one way to scale that up is to raise a fund, you know, like, uh, not just give advice, but be able to give capital. Um, you know, then you can buy into some equity, you're providing extra value to them. And, and other than that, I just keep doing the same thing that I'm doing today, you know, advising the best I can help them out as well as I can. And, and again, and I think my decisions more and more have had this kind of random of freaky coincidence to them because again, I just got contacted by uh, a friend, again, a friend of a friend, and I'd done a bit of work with him in the past. And he was talking to a friend of his about setting up a VC fund. And I was like, hold on a second. I've been thinking about doing that too. And I think we'd make great partners. So we started chatting and we all got to know each other and um, we thought, Hey, why not, why not join forces with the three of us? And, and set up this um, seed pre-seed um, small VC fund in partnership with my friends, software development and design agency Helix Collective. And, um, and they were very aligned, you know, this time uh, being more upfront and direct about it, they were super aligned about the organizational philosophy that, you know, I would hope to do my future ventures with. And, and you know, they were super there as well. And uh, so we can go a bit deeper and more thorough on that. And, and yeah, here we are. And is it the fund set up or you're, you're in operation already? What, what's the latest? So it turns out it's a lot more difficult to set up a fund than my, uh, my, you know, I'm sure it is. belief at the time, you know, how different could it be to registering a company? It turns out a lot. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but not as hard as going professionally in golf. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah. Um, and, and harder to stop too, you know, like there's no clear joints that are needed for, for setting up a yeah. fund, you know, you can get um, uh, 
Uh, so, so yeah, where we're at, we're, um, we're only a couple of weeks off um, proper launch. You know, we've got our first four companies selected um, that we're going to be investing in, terms negotiated, um, all that sort of thing. We've got almost all the legal side complete after a good few months of hustle. We've got our first close on our capital raise, um, uh, probably about double subscribed from what we hoped for. So that's Amazing. awesome. So we've got the, the money there and, um, and we're waiting for, fingers crossed, the December meeting of Oz Industry to grant us uh, ESVCLP conditional registration, um, which is early stage venture capital um, designation from the government, which confers some tax advantages to investors. And it's something that the government's doing to encourage early stage investment in Australia, which I think is super awesome. And so we're applying for that and we need to wait for that before we can formally invest in our companies so that it's through that scheme. So uh, we're just waiting for that. Hopefully we get approved at the December meeting and then, you know, the day after we'll be, we'll be making our first investments and, uh, and yeah, then we'll be, we'll be away. Amazing. Well, it sounds like everything you've done has been driven more by like a mission around people and organizations rather than like, I want to get into fintech. I want to get into actuarial science. It seems like the decisions you've made, even this last one, setting up a VC fund, you weren't like, I want to go, well, I, I want to go invest in companies based on this thesis around telco or whatever. It seemed to be based on a sort of human interest, people driven reason why you created something. That's a through line I'm seeing throughout your life so far. And, and maybe today, what, what's the, what are the number one things that you want to have people know about the, I guess, of course, the fun website, should people go see Helix Collective? Is that, is that the name? Yeah, you can though. You won't find anything. Okay, nothing yet. We'll, we'll wait till the December meeting. Yeah, we need to, we need to rebrand the website. Um, but we, we're, um, we're already at capacity for the next six months. So we haven't really been focused on any, nice. um, any advertising, which I guess is a nice place, but it's also a misleading place when you try and give someone your website. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't even mention anything about the fund yet. But yeah, helixcollective.com is, is the website for the venture. Um, and uh, we will uh, next year be, be launching a new website, which properly explains our values and mission around, yeah, really trying to invest in founders, particularly first-time founders and helping partner with them hands-on and give them, you know, all the support they need from the tech build through to the organizational, you know, advice on navigating capital raises, you know, from our experience, we've been through all these sorts of things a few times. So um, we're really looking forward to helping a few people build some awesome businesses. Um, but I think what you say is true, you know, I mean, that's really what motivates me the most. And I think in many ways, all my transitions have been a um, attempt to refine my sense of what it is that's pulling me. And I, I know that that is something around, um, you know, helping people, you know, like that, that is really what, what excites me at the core of it, but there are lots of other things that excite me as well. And so attempting to get a really clean line on what it is that aligns best with what I can do and the role that I can play that also has a big impact, um, you know, it seems like an endless quest, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and this VC is uh, a great step further towards it. it. It plays well to my strengths and experiences, you know, it can help founders. It can allow me to play in that organizational space, but also it gives me a little bit of a overview of the landscape and a, um, you know, a super privileged position to be able to see a lot of great businesses and opportunities and trends in the market. And, you know, something that I remain super passionate about, you know, as you can probably tell already is decision-making 
and you know the future of work the future of education the future of health you know i think that this depth of understanding in ourselves and creating opportunities for ourselves to understand what makes us unique what gifts we have what talents we have how to align them with the kind of work we do how to educate ourselves to develop our skills and talents so that we can best put that to effort how do we develop the not just the knowledge but also the uh the qualities you know like the presence and the confidence and all the other things you need to truly be able to give the stuff you want to give in the world you know and find fulfillment in that way like they're the topics that light me up and they're the things that as i look back i realize have in sometimes subtle and sometimes more obvious ways driven my transitions attempting to draw that out of myself better or put me in a, in a more strong position to be able to do something about that for others and you know hopefully you know helix collective will be another step towards that where i can help um help businesses in those spaces or you know um push that kind of a direction further forward um which is something that that i'll definitely be looking to do hey i love it and and i you know the other thing that i picked up throughout this is you've you've every single point where there's been a kind of an inflection point and you've needed to draw original thought um, or, you know, what really is the right decision for you. You've always gone into, um, you know, some sort of kind of self-reflection or it's, it's very rarely that you've kind of outsourced your thinking um, or, or so it seemed through this conversation at least. Do you think that that's kind of a, uh, something that you'd recommend others really, you know, take a step back if you're trying to make a good uh, decision or a transition and look inside yourself as to what's kind of the truth for you. Absolutely. Um, with a nuance, you see, I think that's the most important thing. It needs to be the primary objective in making decisions is to understand at deeper and more subtle levels, what, you know, what your decision-making process actually is, you know, what questions you're actually asking, what's the frame you're coming here with, what's the reasons you're pulling left or right, you know, and, and it's not just logic. It's also feeling based. And what are the feelings that you're, pulling towards or pushing away from and there's endless nuance there to look at but also we get so blind you know like my my three months of sitting down and doing the pros and cons around becoming a professional golfer you know it didn't really evolve you know like i spent every weekend on it but i'm not sure there was materially anything new on my list than there was on the first weekend and so in that sense talking to people is super helpful as long as you don't take it as like i'm asking for someone to give me the answer but instead yeah. ask for people to help you see yourself more clearly you know like if you can find people that can point out where your biases are and where your leanings are and and w- what limited perspective you're bringing to it without attempting to tell you what the answer is and that's just going to make it more difficult like those people are real assets and um that's yeah so i'd say both if you can manage to do it in that way um is uh, and I, I've been super lucky to have people in my life that have played those roles and helped me understand the ways that I bias my own perspectives. And, um, and I, you know, I, I hope everyone finds people like that. That, that is amazing. Um, I feel like I've learned so much from this that I can apply to my own life and decision-making that I feel about that I'm going through right now that I, hopefully other people listening feel similarly. I mean, right now, where can people find you, Simon? Like, I know, are you, are you on Twitter? Are you on social media? What, where should people find more to, to hear some of your wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, so I'm, I am just beginning, you know, partly pushed by this VC process. I'm just beginning an, a new phase of doing things more publicly. You know, I never have in the past. Uh, I did one talk at Wisdom 2.0 about five years ago, but um, I, I then, I then dived straight into the telco startup and didn't touch it again. So um, I'm really looking forward to trying this phase and it's going to complement obviously the VC world is kind of pulling it out of me because it'll be helpful to build a bit of profile and talk more about what we're doing at Helix. So 
If you're interested in following along with uh, these thoughts, you could go to simoncrawfordash.com. Um, there's just a simple landing page there at the moment where you can drop your email address in and, and uh, sometime in the first quarter next year, I'll be launching a newsletter and, and um, you can also find me on Twitter, S Crawford Ash. But again, there's nothing much there. They're just placeholders. So um, if you'd like to follow along, uh, slowly be launching a bit more comms about you know, my world and Helix's world and, and behind the scenes look at VC life and decision making and how to support founders and, and how to help people you know, make good decisions and transitions in their life. You know, these topics are all super, super important to me. So if you're interested in any of those, then yeah, please follow along and uh, hopefully we'll be talking a lot more about them. Hell yeah. Get in touch. Looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to seeing your journey, like based on what we've learned from your journey so far, looking forward to seeing what happens next. So thank you so much, Simon, for coming on to this. I, I've, I've had it's such a great awesome. time. It's such a good time. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a real honor. You know, yeah. Really. Hey.